On a previous edition of Bellator Christie Podcast, we began our conversation with Drs. David and Mary Beth Baggett on their book, The Morals of the Story. On this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast, we conclude that conversation on part two of The Morals of the Story right here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. see literary examples fitting in with the apologetic endeavor? Sure. I think it's sort of twofold. Um, on one hand, they serve as illustrations of um, different points that are being made, different concepts that are being presented, um, different the moral facts that were, were just discussed, um, the, the idea that, you know, dignity, for example, human dignity read literature, um, and it just comes up again and again and again that human beings have value. Um, and so it's it's just a, a litany of examples and illustrations. Um, and literature, of course, um, it's one of those things where there's truth in it, even though it's a, it's a creative pr- presentation of that truth, um, almost like a thought experiment in a way where there's this, let's let's have this concept and see it play out. Um, And so many different examples of that. I was thinking about the obligations thing, um, and we contrasted um, On the Road, Jack Kerouac's On the Road with um, John Updike's Rabbit Run. Um, And when Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book, um, a classic of the Beat Generation, um, written in the 50s, very much foreshadowing the 60s countercultural revolution. Um, part of the, it, it is a beautiful book in many ways, but I think the spirit of it um, is very much throwing off tradition, throwing off responsibilities, having a carefree lifestyle, um, really celebrating individualism and um, individual desires. And and, and there really is, I think, in some ways, some truth to it because it is recognizing, um, again, human creativity and um, just the human spirit, and there is a real celebration in some ways. But John Updike, um, who was also an American writer at the end of the 20th century, when he was informed about that book, when he um, was exposed to that book, he his, his first thought was, 
well, that's not right. <laughs> There's something deeply wrong with um, someone who would completely throw off their obligations to, especially their family, um, you know, someone who would just leave behind all of those obligations and things they can do, you know, have free sex and free love and free, uh, you know, um, rebellion, um, drugs, et cetera, and, and have absolutely no consequences. And so Updike um, wrote, Rabbit Run, um, really very much in um, response to Kerouac's vision, and um, Rabbit Run also depicts someone who would throw off his obligations, but does it in a very realistic way uh, to show the consequences. Not that it's a moralistic book, um, because that's not his his purposes as propaganda, but it's much more a representation of a truth that's there. And and literature has that um, just throughout its pages where there's this illustration of this truth. And even if the author, this is the second, I think, um, the, uh, um, purpose that it serves, both as illustration, but then I also think as bridge building where um, even if an author, you'll see this often, even if an author, um, him or herself, does not um, affirm a Christian theistic vision, affirm um, that worldview, they still have lived in this world. They still have experienced the world which, uh, the world God made. Um, and if Christianity is true, they themselves have been made in the image of God. Um, they themselves live in a world that, um, that they are entangled in moral obligations and recognizing human dignity and recognizing the need for transformation. So that, I, I think those are actually the most powerful um, um, illustrations or stories in that way because here's a truth that they're not even fully aware of. Um, I think the first sort of venture out into this that I did um, was with a piece that I wrote for Christ in Pop Culture some years ago. Um, I, I love Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all, that uh, he's a late 20th century American lit author. Um, he variously described himself as atheistic, agnostic, humanist, um, you know, never really set it on a label, but seemed extremely convinced that there there was no God and that even if there was, you know, human beings could, could get along fine without, you know, submitting to religion or anything like that. And yet his books um, are deeply moral, deeply moral. Um, my favorite book by him is, is Slaughterhouse-Five, and um, it's about his time as a POW um, during World War II, and he was in um, Dresden during the firebombing of Dresden. And he's very much in that book, not simply decrying the destruction of war, but it's very much predicated on um, a real deep conviction that human beings are, are worth, like ultimate worth, of ultimate worth. Um, he doesn't really have answers for that on his worldview, and yet that that truth is is just replete, and, and he is convicted about it um, very much. And so a, a few years ago, I wrote a piece um, for Christ and Pop Culture, um, Kurt Vonnegut, Unlikely Apologist, um, and it basically makes that argument that 
throughout his work, he's recognizing something that he can't fully understand, and so using his um, work to make that to make that bridge. And that was a really satisfying um, experience for me because I love Vonnegut so much. And this goes back to my Act 17 um, appreciation for Act 17 because Vonnegut is not one that is typically thought of as, as someone um, that could be used in a Christian <laughs> apologetic <laughs> endeavor. Um, but I, I do, I do think, especially because people who resonate with Vonnegut, um, there are so many fans of his work, um, and I do think, as a Christian, I, I, I'm really familiar with his material, and this was um, just such a great experience to be able to explore it as a Christian, unapologetically, um, you know, from my perspective, and then I actually had a lot of back and forth with um, a commenter who was troubled. <laughs> she was troubled that um, Vonnegut was... Um, I, I think she almost felt like he was being used as a pawn, but I had, I think, some good conversations with her. I don't think, you know, there was no real movement at that time, but I did see it as a, a you know, deeply satisfying um, time, and maybe seed planting, perhaps. But I think those are the ways in which literature can be used. It also, um, I think, can be further explanatory. You know, um, stories often help make something a little bit more memorable. Um, they maybe clarify an idea a little bit because you see it sort of in practice. Um, yeah, and, and if you look through the index, that was one of the things that I did recently is just kind of flip through the index. It's really a, kind of a cool thing because you see so much literature in this apologetics book, you know, just, just kind of filling it. It's, it's, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I agree. With, I, I like what, the, you know, the point you made about stories, you know, impacting, and I think that's so true because, you know, I think about Jesus and the parables he told. I mean, that really resonated with people. And I know, True. you know, with some of the, the messages I bring, I, I usually have, I try to have some illustrations. And I had one illustration to one message where it's a true story where I lost a tire on the lawnmower and nearly crashed into a tree. And uh, everybody asked me, when are you going to preach the lawnmower uh, message again? I don't know if that's... <laughs> I was hoping they'd get something from the scripture, but it's the lawnmower story they remember, you know. <laughs> so, if you will, describe the, now I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Euthyphro Dilemma uh, for our listeners, and uh, what are your thoughts on the dilemma itself? Well, yeah, you know, the Euthyphro Dilemma comes out of an early Socratic dialogue called the Euthyphro and it, it's often thought to pose an insuperable difficulty for any sort of theistic ethic. And, of course, if it, if it does, that's going to fundamentally undermine the moral argument because, remember, a component of the moral argument is a defense of a sturdy theistic ethic. So the original context for the dilemma uh, came about Socrates is going to court. He's being sued, you know, for corrupting the youth and the like. And he runs into Euthyphro, who's going to court, too, to sue his own father for having neglected a servant and allowing him to die. Well, this was almost anathema in the eyes of Socrates, you know, very disloyal to his, uh, to his uh, father. So he said, well, you must have a firm understanding of piety or holiness or justice. So explain it to me, because I don't know what these things are. So Euthyphro tries, and he tries in various ways. But in essence, Euthyphro appeals to the gods of the Greek pantheon. And he says, you know, what they, what they love is what's pious, and what they, what they all hate is what's impious. Um, and it's at this point that, uh, Socrates raises this uh, traditional dilemma, and to couch it in contemporary terms, just referring to God instead of the God, 
Does God say command something because it's moral or is something moral because God commands it? And either way you go, uh, it's thought that you run into uh, an intractable challenge. If you say something is moral because, because God commands it, simply in virtue of God commanding it, well, what if God were to command us to torture children for fun or something like this? So you run into the notorious arbitrariness objection especially to something like divine command theory, which is one among other theistic ethical theories. If instead you say God commands something because it's moral, <clears throat> right? Instead of saying it's moral because God commands it, you say instead God, uh, it's moral, uh, it, God command, uh, it, it, I forgot which is which. <laughs> if you say something is moral, <laughs> if you say something is moral because God commands it, you, you run into the arbitrariness problems. But if you say that God commands something because it's moral, that makes it seem like morality is independent of God and that sort of thing. And, that, and then you're departing from theistic ethics because, because no longer does morality essentially depend on God. Okay, so in, in Good God, uh, Jerry and I, we came up with a list of seven uh, distinctions, seven relevant distinctions uh, that are very useful and handy. Uh, and by which I think that you can pretty much uh, de defuse the objections that come out of the Euthyphro dilemma. Uh, so, for example, we distinguish between analysis and uh, definition. Uh, I'm trying to remember uh, univocation and equivocation, um, the good and the right, conceivability, possibility, and so forth and so on. And when you when you uh, use this full set of seven distinctions that we we make. You can actually, I think, uh, effectively answer arbitrariness objections and other objections that arise uh, against uh, theistic ethics. Uh, in a nutshell, the way I'd answer it is um, by distinguishing between the good and the right, between values and, and duties. And I would say values are likely, I think, on a theistic picture rooted in one way or another in God's very nature or character. So it's not just a volitional matter of whatever God uh, happens to command. But I think that moral obligations um, probably are tied to God's commands. I happen to like the, uh, the divine command theory. But again, someone doesn't have to be a divine command theorist to be a moral apologist, right? Uh, again, there's, there's what's central to moral apologetics, and then there's what's more secondary uh, or peripheral. And those are some of the specific theistic ethical theories that you might be drawn to. I happen to be a divine command theorist with respect to moral obligations, and I think that uh, armed with this uh, set of distinctions, we can effectively answer all of the various objections that arise out of, out of the Euthyphro dilemma. But someone else might be a divine will theorist or a theistic natural law person or a divine uh, preference theorist. Uh, you know, there are different options out there. But again, what's most interesting for present purposes is that for the moral argument, all that you need is the underlying conviction shared in common by all of these approaches that morality, uh, in important respects, essentially depends on God. And if there are excellent reasons to believe that, as, as I think there are, then the moral argument is well on its way to, to being uh, a very effective one indeed. So does the Euthyphro dilemma pose this sort of intractable challenge that some think uh, it does to theistic ethics? I think the answer to that is no. And so theistic ethics, uh, you know, lives to fight another day, and the moral argument holds out hope for success. This is absolutely amazing because, you know, uh, to be honest with you, you know, of, of the different 
cases to be made for God. Personally, I, I probably looked at the moral argument the least, but it seems that the moral argument has a lot of power and substance behind it. It does. In fact, uh, Bry, interestingly enough, William Lane Craig, whose favorite argument is probably the cosmological argument, has said that when he goes to college campuses, the argument that, in his experience, has been the most effective and persuasive is the moral argument. And Alvin Plantinga, probably the greatest living Christian philosopher, when asked, among the arguments of natural theology, which do you think is the, is the best? He says, the moral argument. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, I think that this resurgence of interest that we have seen in the last decade or so in the moral argument, uh, it was definitely time for that, because uh, it has tremendous potential. And again, a very rich and fertile history. You know, uh, Jerry Walls and I are, are writing a book on the history of the moral argument, and we did, did a little bit of history in, in this book, Mary Beth and I, but, but we have an, a big you know, book on, on the history of the moral argument coming out with, with Oxford. It'll probably be next year because we we're hoping to wrap it up this summer, but I'm telling you, the, the list of luminaries in this field historically and major scholars uh, who have worked in this area and done absolutely uh, top-notch, top-drawer work you know, from uh, Webb to Dorr to Sorley to Taylor to uh, uh, Ewing uh, to McGrody's, a, a bunch of contemporary guys, um, it, 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 John Henry Newman. I mean, it's a really rich, rich history. And uh, interestingly enough, nowadays, if you say, moral argument, who came up with that? Most people will say who? Well, probably, I don't know, C.S. Lewis. But before, and C.S. Lewis did great work on it, uh, but well before him, well before him, there, there, were, there were dozens of brilliant thinkers who expended some of their best intellectual energies in explicating and defending versions of the moral argument. And of course, in the last uh, few uh, decades here in the United States, we've, we've seen uh, a bunch of top-notch uh, philosophers and theologians uh, work in this area and and construct uh, extremely powerful variants of the moral argument. So it's an exciting time for the moral argument, man. I'm all I'm all about it. Absolutely. We um, if if you have if you have time, I, I know uh, you're on time restraint. I, I'd like to ask you a couple more questions here uh, before we sum things up, uh, wrap things up. I think we're okay. Yeah. Sounds I think we're okay on time. Sounds great. Uh, what is the nature? of abduct, abductive inferences. Yeah. So when I began to think about the, the moral argument, uh, I was thinking about William Lane Craig's version, and, and I'm a huge fan of uh, William Lane Craig. I absolutely love him. In fact, we dedicated this book uh, to him and his wife. And he's had a, a great influence on, on me and so many. He's just done such good work in, in, in apologetics. So love him, love him, love him. But uh, his version of the moral argument is a deductive version, right? So it says something like, if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values and duties don't exist. So he keys in just on those particular moral facts. So it's a little narrower in that sense. Uh, but the second premise, uh, moral, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. And it's modus tollens. It's a, it's a deductively valid argument form. So if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. It's pithy. It's succinct, it's concise, you know, and as I say, on college campuses, he's met with a lot of success, it's generated a lot, a lot of great uh, discussion. But what we wanted to do was uh, to, uh, to um, adjust the argument in various ways. We wanted to look at a broader 
base of evidence, not just uh, uh, values and duties, but also uh, you know, free will, meaningful agency, uh, moral rights, uh, moral faith, um, and, and moral knowledge and the like. But also, we wanted to adjust it from an, a deductive argument, where the premises logically guarantee the conclusion, to an abductive argument. It's not a deductive argument. It's rather what uh, is often called an inference to the best explanation. So it's not this idea that uh, the only explanation or the only possible ex explanation is, is God. Maybe you can make that case, but we're not, we're not biting off that much to chew. What we're doing is, in a sense, lowering the, the bar. We're kind of arguing for something less ambitious, but uh, an advantage is that the premises don't have to do so much work to sustain that less ambitious conclusion. So overall, the strength of the argument, we think, actually might be greater, and it might be less susceptible to... Uh, to criticisms and, and critiques and so forth, right? Because a notorious challenge to deduction is, I mean, you, you make one little one little pinprick in in the airtight case from premises to conclusion, and the deductive argument is going to potentially fail. See, so in an abductive case, we start with uh, this range of moral facts that we discussed earlier, and we ask, not what's the only explanation, but simply, less ambitiously, what's the best explanation? And so you construct your uh, explanation candidates, versions of naturalistic ethics and theistic ethics and the like, and then you subject them to critical scrutiny and you, and you really say, okay, if we take this evidence uh, with great seriousness, which worldview here and which, which ethical theories can really deeply explain those, those facts in a way that is natural and organic, that flows um, you know, quite quite naturally out of the uh, worldview in question and the like. So if you are able to make that kind of case, then uh, the end result will be that you can say something like, morality indeed provides us, you know, some reason, some evidence to believe that God exists. And uh, that, that, that maybe doesn't sound quite as, uh, as dramatic as, God's the only possible explanation, right? But uh, we think that there's kind of something a little potentially off-putting about saying that anyway, right? Because often our, our secular friends are people who care about ethics, and they do have their ethical convictions, and a lot of them are actually trying to be good people. And uh, and I think that we should, and we're trying to win them, not just win an argument, right? right. And it's kind of it's kind of a bridge-burning exercise if you say, well, as an atheist, you know, you can't really believe any of this stuff. Um, it, it, you see what I'm saying? I think it's much better to say, you know, as a human being, I think uh, you and I can really agree on a lot here. You know, torturing children for the fun of it is wrong. Treating people in dehumanizing ways is wrong. Canceling Firefly after 13 episodes was wrong. <laughs> amen to that. And so forth, right? Yeah, amen, amen. Uh, who, it's non-negotiable, right? Yeah, everyone can see that. Believer and unbeliever alike, <laughs> right? All right. So um, anyway, then then you say, now, okay, having agreed on that, we've got this common ground. That's great. And oftentimes our atheist friends will say, of course I believe that torturing children for the fun of it is wrong, and they're being honest. And then they'll say, and you can understand why. They'll say, and I don't need God to tell me that. Great. That gives us the common ground. Now we can have an explanation. What ultimate metaphysical picture of the world is going to provide the most robust and adequate explanation of these non-negotiable truths on which we completely agree, on which we completely agree? 
And I think it's a, it's a bridge building exercise to approach it in this way. Um, and, and so I think that there are dialectical, if nothing else, dialectical advantages to sort of shifting the form of the argument from a deductive approach to an abductive one. But again, that's just our particular uh, preferred way to couch the argument. And if someone else wants to push a different form of the argument, uh, Mark Linville gives his own version, which is brilliant, and we actually incorporate aspects of his into ours. Craig still likes his deductive version, and, and we wish him good success as he continues to use it. This is not a competition, obviously. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same page. Uh, the, there are just various ways in which to conduct this discussion, and uh, you know, having wisdom and prudence to know which approach is best in a particular situation is something we can all we can all pray for. Amen. And I think uh, people across the board will agree that Firefly should not have been canceled. Absolutely. <laughs> non, non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. <laughs> so now what is the relevance of moral obligations uh, to the moral argument? Sure. So it's one of those important moral facts in need of explanation. Yeah, moral obligations. I think most all of us as human beings believe that there are at least some of these. And that they're not just kind of suggestions or rules, right? If you really have an obligation say, to uh, help someone in need in a particular circumstance, or negatively, not to hurt someone, not, not to treat someone uh, in, inhumanely, uh, not to torture someone just for the fun of it, or whatever, um, then it's, it's, not, it's not just an idea, it's not just a suggestion, it's the kind of thing that if you neglect to do your duty, you are blameworthy, rightly, legitimately blameworthy, and you should feel guilty about it. Uh, you might not feel guilty about it, you know, maybe you've got a seared conscience or something like that, but uh, that, that says you know, more about you than about the situation itself, right? If someone tortures a child for fun and they don't feel guilty, there's something, you know, wrong there. Now, you do have some folks who don't have a lot of empathy and so forth, and they might not have a, a, a tremendous number of uh, guilty feelings, and that's okay. I mean, David Wood is, is an example of someone uh, who was uh, born with... Um, uh, psychopathy tendencies, but he still became a Christian eventually. And in fact, one of the reasons he became a Christian was the moral argument. God reached him despite his lack of typical feelings. And in fact, today, now he's a powerful Christian apologist, and we tell his story in our book. It's, it's a wonderful story, and it really is testament to the fact that people aren't falling through the cracks here. God loves absolutely every one of us. And that, that's, that's the underlying theme of the whole approach, right? The God, like we discussed earlier, God is a God of love, and he loves each and every one of you. And in fact, look, I think there are a lot of Christians out there, by the way, who doubt that, who really mm-hmm. doubt down deep that God really loves them. Or maybe God loves me, but he doesn't really like me. The amazingly good news is God loves each and every one of us. God likes us, too, mm-hmm. amazingly enough. Even you, Brian. Even you. Even anyway, me. Let me continue. And you know he's got to so, be a good God to like me. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I mean, Country you know, that, it that, oh my goodness. No, but obligations have have distinctive features. And, and this is where I say this painstaking analysis is so important. You have to take this evidence seriously. It's very easy to dismiss it, you know, in just, you know, sanguine fashion, like, oh, I don't have to believe in God to believe in moral duties. Well, what are moral duties? I mean, give it some thought. I mean, think about the authority of moral obligations where that authority comes from. How would you make sense of that if ultimately we're nothing but uh, collocations of atoms and molecules, if we're 
determined to do everything that we do. If God didn't create us, if he didn't create us in his image, if, if this world isn't ordered by a, a moral governor, where on earth would authoritative moral obligations come from that provide a, a verdict on our action, that bring you know, reflection to closure, that involves accountability when we fall short, you know, that holds for persons as persons? And what about these, these experiences of guilt, not just feelings of guilt, but the actual objective condition of guilt. I mean, condemnation for wrongdoing, not just being sorry that we happen to get caught, but this indelible experience of moral guilt that all of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, know down deep to be true, right? Something that deserves punishment and censure. Um, Justice demands it. At the same time, we, as human beings, intuitively sense the possibility and the desperate need for forgiveness for wrongdoing, right? So it's not just condemnation, it's just hope for forgiveness, and maybe even an obligation to hope. Um, and we have the sense that we have sinned against a person, at least on occasion, um, and sometimes you can't identify what person that is, but still there's this sense that reality itself is personalist, and that our moral failures are an affront to a person. How on earth do you explain these phenomenological facts, these these uh, intractable features of objective moral obligations, uh, we argue that theism generally, and Christian theism particularly, provides an impeccable, powerful, robust explanation of such moral facts uh, as, as these. So this is one of those important, vitally important moral facts in need of explanation that uh, plays a part in our cumulative abductive moral case. Okay, one more question. What do you mean by moral faith, and why is it relevant to the moral argument? Moral faith, yeah, sure. sure this is a Kantian notion, and Immanuel Kant was an important early luminary in the field of moral apologetics. He gave uh, about two or three different versions of the moral argument for God's existence and for uh, immortality and the like. Moral faith involves two things specifically, and... Uh, one, one is the matter of moral transformation. It's this idea of holding out a realistic hope that we can actually be morally changed. Also, as part of that, actually, I see also the need for moral forgiveness, as was mentioned. And these, of course, correspond and dovetail very nicely with the Christian doctrines of justification, forgiveness before God, and sanctification, you know, being changed. And you can see here uh, my having been raised in the holiness tradition, that influence. But I think it's profoundly true and a, a profoundly central biblical teaching that there is realistic hope for us uh, as uh, creatures who have been made in God's image and for a reason and for a purpose, that we can be forgiven, that we can be changed, that we can have a relationship with God in the context uh, in which we can be radically transformed, and we can even hold out the realistic hope, ultimately, for moral perfection, nothing less than moral perfection. You know, a funny story about this, Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, talks about how he uh, aimed for moral perfection himself, just, you know, with the resources of his own, at his own disposal, you know. So he discovered that, oh, he'd work in one area of his life, and then something else would pop up, and then he'd work in that area, and something else would pop up. And we all know the frustration that comes from our own efforts at uh, moral improvement and amelioration. But uh, Christianity teaches that there, 
there are additional resources at our disposal we, we can tap into, the very grace of God that can transform us. So we can be forgiven, and ultimately, all of us can be absolutely changed. You know, interestingly enough, when you give the moral argument to secular folks, uh, their first response is often, oh, I don't have to believe in God to be a moral person. And, and usually we say, well, look, we're not trying to say that. We're talking about, you know, where do these moral obligations come from? What makes sense of their objectivity and authority and all of that? But actually, then we should round back to that discussion at some point and say, and by the way, you can't really be that moral uh, ultimately without God. None of us can. If we're honest with ourselves, and I'm just speaking for myself, I know how susceptible, how vulnerable I am, how weak I can be. You know, those sins that so easily beset us. We need God's grace to be forgiven, to be changed. We don't just need our sins to be forgiven. We need the objective sinful condition to be fixed within us. And ultimately, only God's grace can do, it, uh, can do that according to Christianity. But this speaks powerfully, then, to this intuitive need we all recognize for moral change, radical moral change. And the other aspect of moral faith is this issue of, but do happiness and holiness ultimately cohere? You know, there was a guy named Sidgwick, Henry Sidgwick, who lived a couple hundred years ago, and he talked about the dualism of practical reason. He talked about how we sense within ourselves conflicting impulses, both to help other people and kind of do what's best for, say, society, but also to do what's best for ourselves. And oftentimes, mercifully, these things nicely correspond. But on occasion, they don't. There's a disconnect, and it's intractable. You know, you might have to sacrifice, say, your life in order to save the other folks in your unit, in you know, army unit or something in a battle or, or something like that. So what is good for the larger society might not be what's best for you. Mm. And if this life is all that there is, that's the end of the story, and there's an intractable tension potentially here between these two impulses. Well, Sidgwick, who was an unbeliever, thought that this was the central problem afflicting ethics. He called it the dualism of practical reason, and he didn't think that there was a, a good solution to it. He could only see one possible solution, and that was if we were indeed under the governorship of a moral orderer, a divine moral orderer, who would ensure the correspondence between happiness and holiness ultimately. Now, you might think, well, so what? You know, uh, what's the problem with this, such a dualism and just allowing it to be uh, a thorny problem that you can't be resolved? The problem is that, uh, that morality will lack rational stability. It will not be a fully rational enterprise if indeed the dualism of practical reason is intractable and doesn't admit of any ultimate solution. The one solution that Sidgwick saw was God. We take this to be, potentially, another piece of evidence, right? God can explain the resolution, can account for uh, the needed resolution to the dualism of practical reason. reason. Sadly, Sidgwick didn't allow himself to go there, and he didn't allow this to function evidentially for him to change his mind. But we suggest that, you know, with all due respect, perhaps he should have. We think it's... <laughs> Sorry about that. You might... No problem. I have to cut that out. So, so we argue that we argue that th this is another uh, piece of the cumulative case, cumulative moral case that we can make for a rationality uh, of belief in God's existence. That uh, God uh, understood in the Anselmian sense and the distinctively Christian sense in particular is a uh, 
provides a powerful ex explanation for uh, a resolution of the dualism of practical reason that otherwise undermines the full rational authority of morality. Amen. Well, Mary Beth, we'll give you the final question here uh, for a podcast. Who now? Now we we do know in the book you said that uh, you you don't envision zombies and uh, dead people <laughs> as uh, being the readers of the book. But who do you envision as your readers, and what is your hope for them? Sure, um, we think it would be accessible to non-academics who um, you know are well-read and um, really ready to investigate these ideas we really really tried to make it accessible in a lot of ways and so uh, we're hopeful that that worked um, that that proof is going to be in the pudding we know um, but we are we are hopeful that it's for both but both academics and non-academics non, non we um, do have little nuggets here and there um, the interlude for example is um, a little bit more challenging and so that might give um, people who want a little bit more challenge something you know to really chew on we did move a lot of things to the footnotes um, to kind of unpack things a little bit more that we left um, sort of more cursory in the body um, so I think that helps a little bit with with appealing to two different audiences in that way we also think it would help um, both Christians and non-Christians um, Christians for, for some of the reasons that I had mentioned earlier about my own personal experience with it um, to help bolster my faith um, I think also to equip them um, better for, for ministry, being able to engage with um, non-believers and, and have this additional um, piece to be able to discuss and wrestle with. And, and that's really our goal um, just overall, is to, not to um, force people to accept this and not to suggest that they are irrational if they do not accept it, but really to present these are things that we have uncovered that we have um, really thought about. These are some conclusions that we've drawn, and we want to present it to to readers um, just to really start a conversation. We don't. We definitely do not think this is um, the final word by any means. We, we really hope that that's the way that we presented this, but really to invite them into a conversation. Um, again, both for Christians to explore these ideas, to better understand their faith, to better equip them for conversations with um, non-believers, I think even to help um, them sort of teach themselves um, some of the things that we, we have learned um, to explore them for themselves. Um, but also for non-Christians, we know with the IVP academic label, that's going to be a little bit, um, you know, sort of a bit of a challenge because it is, IVP is really geared towards a Christian readership, but we really do hope that it will get in the hands of, of non-Christians. Um, to, to really encourage them to think about the force of these questions, um, again, to be able to share our convictions, some of the conclusions that we've drawn, to really encourage them, I think, in their search for truth as well. And, and, and we really tried our, our best, I think, to present these things in a um, conversational way, um, in a very non-aggressive way, um, as winsome as possible. We, we did write this, I will mention this, we did write this um, really in the wake of, and, and much of it, during the 2016 election, which was so contentious. Um, oh, yeah. Of course, you know, still, still is reverberating, <laughs> of course. Um, but I think that in mind, um, that was so pressing on our minds to, to really try to take things down a notch. Um, exactly. And to not 
um, yeah, to not invade people's consciousness, you know, <laughs> to allow them that space and that freedom. And so we hope that for that reason, um, both Christians and non-Christians will be able to engage. And, and, and really just to be part of this conversation, we, we definitely don't see ourselves as the final word or the you know, experts or anything like that, but but just these are things that we care about. These are um, convictions that we have. These are conclusions that we've drawn. These are a lot of things, I think, that would be helpful for you to think about, and that's the way that we really hope that, that we've come across. That was definitely our intention, so that's our hope as well. Amen. David and Mary Beth, thank you so much for being with us today. What an honor it has been uh, to have you with us on the podcast today. We want to encourage all of our listeners, unless you're a zombie or a vampire, uh, to go pick up a copy of their book, The Morals of the Story, Good News About a Good God, uh, published by IVP Academic, available at bookstores everywhere. Guys, thank you again, and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Heather, and we, uh, we enjoyed it. Absolutely. For David and Mary Beth, uh, again, an honor and privilege to have them with us today. This is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision. Make it plain. We're training champions to change the world. That vision of training champions for Christ to change the world is the foundation of Liberty University. It always has been, and it always will be. Everything we are today is built upon it. But while our vision hasn't changed since 1971, the world around us has. Fewer and fewer people understand what we mean when we say train champions for Christ. So we show them. We show them what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lens of academics, athletics, through the way we have fun and the way we serve one another and the world. We show them that we the faithful, the bold, the united, and the brave are also we the creators, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the leaders. We the champions are committed to tackling the issues of our time with integrity and prayer. 
Our vision hasn't changed. It has strengthened, broadened, expanded. It has grown into over 550 programs of study, reaching into over 80 countries, uniting over 100,000 students into a beautifully diverse family with a singular vision. champions in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge. Do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless, bring healing to the hurting, fight for the oppressed, defend freedom, defy stereotypes, and follow God's calling wherever it may lead. Find out more about Liberty University by visiting liberty.edu.